Hey family, it's Tamala. Wanted to let you guys know that this next episode may cause triggers. It has sensitive information for specifics. Please check out the show notes. Thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful day. Welcome to the Codependent Me podcast. I'm Tamala Shaw, a recovering codependent, a codependent life coach, and the co-author of God Turned Mommy's Wine Into Water. This podcast was created to increase the awareness of codependency and to give a more holistic look at the journey and healing of codependence. Welcome to the Codependent Me podcast. I'm your host, Tamara Shaw. Today, we have Terry Kozlowski with us. It's so exciting. She's an author, a coach, and we're so very happy to have her with us today. Welcome, Terry, to the podcast. Thank you, Tamara. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Thank you. I was so excited about today. I've heard a bit of your story, and we met on Podmatch. Well, we were connected on Podmatch. Again, what a wonderful platform. So I'm not going to get in the way of you and the audience. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, my story is a sad one of trauma, childhood trauma. And unlike most people, um, mine has a little bit of everything. So I am a child of an alcoholic and drug addict, my mother. And because of her um, dependency on and not learning to deal with her own issues, she kind of passed on some things to my sister and I that shouldn't have been passed on. But also, she ended up selling my innocence when I was 11 to three men so she could have drugs for free. Well, in her mind, it was free. It wasn't free or because it cost my innocence. And it, it ultimately cost my relationship with my mother. So at the age of 11, I was sexually assaulted. While my mother watched in the corner and there's a part of my little 11 year old brain that shut that portion of it off until I was older enough to understand what that meant. Um, But there's a whole lot of things that occurred in all of that um, very quickly. It's amazing how our brains work. It's amazing how the egoic mind, whose only job is to protect us, goes into overdrive, especially when we're a child, and really takes hold and say, okay, I have to protect you at all costs, and what that actually means. And in the long run, how the egoic mind, although did protect us for a period, it's defense mechanisms that it put into place that worked for a period of time end up harming us in the long run. Absolutely. So when you say, hmm, that's, that's a lot. That's, <laughs> you came right out of this, out of the, out I of did. The, came right, right out shooting. <laughs> I was like, I, oh. I did. And that's in that. And I, and I appreciate it. And I want to say, I want to honor you first of all, for being able to tell the story for being able to be strong enough, because of course, you being able to tell your story, there are others out there with the same story. It lets them know that they're not alone, that um, that you can survive it, right? Absolutely. Um, and that if you just get certain help, that things will be okay. Eventually. Absolutely. You get mm-hmm. there, right? So when did you start to heal from this 
horrific situation that happened in your life? Well, I have to say I was a very aware child Mm -hmm. because I, from the time, from the time the the event occurred, um, we were taking technically on vacation, visiting my mother for summer break. Mm -hmm. And we ended up leaving, um, early, of course, because this happened, this happened during the week. Um, she got drunk, everybody, she had a party on a Friday night. She disappeared for a couple of days, showed back up and then literally put a suitcase out on the front stoop and told my sister and I, it was time for us to go home, closed the door and locked it. So in that snap, I became a little instant adult because I had a 11 month younger sister than me. She was about a year younger than I was that I was now responsible for. And because of that, there comes that codependent behavior that comes into effect when you're dealing with others. I was already taking care of my mother because she was an alcoholic. So she would pass out. I would cover her up. I would pour drinks. I dump drinks, all those things. I was paying bills. I was Mm. doing grocery shopping. I was cooking meals for my younger sister. So these were the things that when you look back and you say, dang, (laughs) you know, dang. But the reality was in that instant that my mother now physically abandoned us on the streets of Albuquerque, New Mexico, I was 3000 miles away from home Mm. and had to figure out how to get there. And I wanted to call the police and my sister didn't want to do that because here we go. We don't want mommy to get in trouble. trouble. Yeah. Okay. So we're protecting, we're protecting Mm -hmm. our abuser. So we decide on a different, different strategy of getting Mm -hmm. home, went to one of my mother's friend's houses and called my dad. The next day we were on a plane back to Pittsburgh and I get off the plane and this, this is where my healing journey started. I get off the plane and I, my sister goes running up to my dad into his arms and I walk up carrying a suitcase and say, daddy, I need therapy. I'm 11. So I knew enough of what had happened to me that this was big. I didn't understand what it was. I didn't have the language to tell anybody what happened at this point. Um, And, but I knew enough that I needed help. I couldn't do this by myself. Mm -hmm. So that was on a it was on a weekend that following Monday, I was in therapy. So my dad immediately started me in therapy and this was in the early eighties. So therapy was very, very, very different than it was than it is now. And because I didn't have the language of what happened to me, Mm -hmm. I didn't say anything. You know, and by the time I did realize what happened, because, you know, sexual assault, when you are 11 and you don't know what sex is, you don't know what this is. So when I finally did figure out what it was, then the shame hit. Mm. And then, you know, now it's a secret right? because, you know, you don't want to get anybody in trouble. But interestingly enough, when I was home for about six or eight months when I finally sat down with my dad and told my dad what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and without realizing it, he gave me the answer that I didn't realize until decades later to really and truly how most people deal with trauma incorrectly. And one of the things we do is we ask why, why me? What did I do? How did this happen? We go and search into the past 
the question why and how this happened. And guess what? We stay stuck there. At that age as well, you stay right there. Yeah. And at whatever age your trauma occurs, that's the age you stop growing. That's right. So my dad said to me, now what? And I didn't understand the question. And he said, well, what do you want to do now? Now I thought, okay, he wants me to prosecute. Well, I'm not going to do that to my mother, number one. And number two, I also was wise enough at that time to realize that didn't bode well for young girls with when there wasn't a rape kit done or anything like that. So I said, I don't want to do anything because I didn't understand the question, but looking back on that and interesting, it was, um, decades later, (laughs) I physically went back to New Mexico and on the way to there, we're driving through Texas and we're getting, and I'm seeing Albuquerque, you know, how far away Albuquerque is. And we cross the state line. And my husband says, are you okay? I said, I'm better than okay. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I now understand what my dad meant. And he said, what do you mean? I said, now what is really about looking at the present and moving forward? And that really is, even though I didn't realize it until you know a couple of years ago, the reality is I had been taking that journey. I just didn't realize I could have started it a whole lot sooner if I understood, if we get told Okay, yes, this bad thing happened to you. Yes, you had mechanisms put into place to keep you safe. Those aren't working anymore. They're hindering your growth process. So now what are you going to do? And for me, the, the retaking of our power is something that most of us struggle with because we want control. Right. So we control things on the exterior, And we become control freaks and we become um, those people who have everything perfectly in the right place. And heaven forbid somebody moves our pen because then we just get completely enraged for all of these things, because those are those things that we can, we feel we can't control. The reality is we can only control one thing and that's ourselves. And when we decide that to empower us, we focus on what I can do now. Yes, bad things happened to me. Yes, I really had a bad childhood. And right now I'm choosing to deal with the present moment. The present moment is the only place where we can actually make change. You can't change the past and you can't change the future. The only time that you can do any change is in the present moment. So you have to focus on the present moment. But the other thing is then realizing that whoever harmed us, whoever caused us our trauma, they're really not thinking about us Mm. and we don't affect their day to day the way they affect our day to day. And guess what? That means our power. We're voluntarily letting them keep our power. That's good. And the real, the real truth of all that is for me to take my power back. I have to take responsibility for my life from this moment forward. Absolutely. Don't, don't worry about the past. Don't worry about what happened there. But from this moment forward, I'm going to be responsible for the choices I make, for the words I say, and how I respond to the events in my life. Those are the things you absolutely can control. And when you do that, when you take that responsibility, 
you regain your power. Yes. And that, and that is true power. That's that internal power that you had given away all of these years, but now you have that back and you actually feel it. it rises from within you. And these are the things that people say, well, my trauma shattered me. Mm, it may have, but I want to say that you were always whole. And this is why you're always whole. Your mm. soul can neither be created nor destroyed. The energy that is you can neither be created or destroyed. It can only be transformed. And that being said, the transformation that happens when trauma occurs is what? We put on armor. We cover up. Yeah. We have shame. We have labels. We start putting masks on. Yeah. And what feels like brokenness is really our authenticity being hidden away and our joy and our peace being pushed down and not being allowed to bubble to the surface. And when we realize that these are all spiritual qualities, peace is a spiritual quality. You will never find peace outside of yourself. Joy is a spiritual quality. You will never find joy outside of yourself. These things bubble up from inside, but the only way for them to come to the surface is for those masks and labels and um, armor that we put on ourselves. We put on ourselves. Mm -hmm. Nobody put this upon us. We may had taken labels that other people had given us, you know, Terry's a control freak. Well, that I, it was a label I decided to wear for a long time. I don't wear that label anymore. Mm. Uh, so I'm, I'm well organized. I am not a control freak. I'm well right. organized. <laughs> <laughs> but when we realize and we start taking off those things, we realize our wholeness was always there. Our worthiness was always there. Nobody looks at a newborn baby and says, you're not, it's not being productive. You know, all it does is eat and cry and, and poop in a diaper. And yet we love this little life to death and it's worthy just as it is. And that's yeah. part of what happens is that when there's trauma, when there's codependency, who we really are doesn't feel worthy. And we start looking for all of that outside of ourselves. I love you said it's worthy just as it is. Mm -hmm. That is huge. That uh, everything that you said is phenomenal. Like the bubbling up to the, <laughs> just you, you make it so I can visualize certain things. Mm -hmm. And that is beautiful. The whole, that is beautiful. Thank you. Mm, that is, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking <laughs> that all of that had to do with how you named your book. Kind of, yes. <laughs> Let's talk about so, it. Okay. So my book, Raven Transcending Fear, is my teaching memoir of how I went through my trauma, how I arrived on the planet, because we all arrive on the planet the same way. Perfect. Mm -hmm knowing exactly who we are, being our authentic selves until we hit about the age of four or five. And then we start having issues with our parents, no fault of parents, because I'm a parent, I did this too, parents telling us to be good boys and good girls. And we start being judged on our behaviors, not our authenticity, not the authentic emotions coming out of us, but being able to learn to stuff those emotions. 
Okay. So we start that and then we get into school and then we start learning how others outside of our family wants us to behave and we start conforming and heaven forbid we get, when we get to our teenage years, we don't conform to peers on peer pressure. And we all want to look alike and be alike and be like that person and change who we authentically are. We all go through this process. I really believe that when we hit midlife or whatever that you know, midlife crisis is what's really happening is our authentic selves is saying, dang it, this is not who I am. Makes sense. And, and it comes bursting forth in some outrageous way of, because it's being authentic and who the world sees us as is, is hiding our authenticity. So the book starts talking about me as my authentic self coming into the world, a very independent, little girl, um, very much quite aware of the world around me, noticing things that shouldn't, I shouldn't have noticed as a child, like having to take my sister's hand because my mother wouldn't when we were in Germany and I was three and my sister was two. Okay. At a very young age, I took responsibility for my sister. And looking back, I see the tiny signs that really were interesting but at the same time, sad. Yeah. At the same time, sad because Terry didn't have a normal childhood. It, it was truncated by the fact that she had an alcoholic mother and she had to learn to do things not only for her sister, but also for herself. Right. So I go, I talk about the trauma and then I talk about my journey coming out of the trauma and how things I dealt with. But the Raven is I am native American. My mother's Native American. She's from a little um, Athabascan tribe in Fort Yukon, Alaska, eight miles inside the Arctic Circle. And she grew up in a sustenance living environment uh, when she, in the early 1900s, um, when she was born, they had no running water, no electricity. And yet she was given up for adoption when she was 16. And her entire livelihood and who she was, was taken away from her when she was adopted by Christian missionaries. All they wanted to do was love her and give her nice things. But at the same time, they ripped away her identity. And that is really what she struggled. That was the core of what her issues were. And by the time she was 18, she was an alcoholic. So she had always been looking for ways to figure out how to deal with not being Native American, but at the same time being Native American. When your identity is ripped away from you, it's hard to figure out who you are when you're told not to be something that you are. It's the same way with any identity crisis, whether it is from any aspect of living. Who you authentically are is what you're supposed to be. And if that gets stopped in any way or stagnated in any way, there are consequences for that. And there's behavioral issues that come out of that. There's codependency behaviors that come out of that. There's defense mechanisms that come out of that, that over time harm us. No defense mechanism was ever meant to stay in place forever. Mm. (laughs) Defense mechanisms are there for a reason for a period of time until you either get out of the situation or you learn a better coping mechanism. And that's the problem with childhood trauma is that, again, you get stuck. And whatever that childhood trauma age was, whatever that egoic defense mechanism that took, took hold 
worked for a period of time. But as I aged, it occurred to me that, hmm. So for example, one of the first things I learned was if I told people I had trauma, kind of what happens? If I said, if you and I just met and I said to you, Tamla, I have some trauma in my history. You know, how do you react to me? Right. Everybody's like, oh, oh. Correct. There's an outpouring of sadness. There's an empathy, which is fine and dandy. But really and truly, in the early 80s, when this wasn't talked about, the main thing that people did was it made them feel very uncomfortable. And then they left me alone, which was what I wanted. I wanted to be left alone. So when I got to college, I had a friend tell me that I got something out of being a victim. Now, I was very angry at what he said to me, but I also realized he said it to me from a place of love because I paused and thought about, okay, what am I getting out of this? And I realized that I was getting something. People were leaving me alone and I wanted to be left alone. So what I had learned was a defense mechanism of if I tell them I had a traumatic experience, they leave me alone. Okay. So being forthcoming, being truthful about what happened to me Mm -hmm. gave me something in return, which is being left alone. Now I'm 18 now. And I realized, you know what, there has to be a better, better, better way to communicate Mm -hmm. that I'm okay with knowing you. And I'm, but you know what, I don't want us to run around together or I don't want to go out in the evenings that, you know, there's a better way for me to communicate, but Tamala, you're really nice. Let's have lunch together. But if you start saying, well, let's, you know, go to the dance club. No, no thank there, you. you know, I, I could easily say, no, thank you. And then be the end of it. But there's a better way for me to communicate that to you than saying and doing the other trauma. thing. I have trauma and then equestering my sequestering myself, because mm-hmm. that's the other thing trauma victims do is we stay by ourselves. Guess what? That's one of the worst things you can possibly do because when you're by yourself, your egoic mind just goes and goes and goes. And then what does that cause you to do? You think about the past, you go into a depression. My definition of depression is being stuck in the past. Your brain is thinking and worrying about the past. So I did a complete 180. I got myself out of the depression. I am now communicating with people. And then I decided I was going to have all my focus on the future. And guess what that does? That gives you anxiety attacks because when you're focused on the future and not dealing with the present moment, you're focusing on the future. You are then now, what if this happens? And what if that happens? And what if I say this? And what if they do that? And you know, all of that, your mind's still going. So either you're going in the, in the past direction, which is depression, or you're going in the future direction, which is anxiety. And guess what? We don't live in either place. Right. You are right here in the present. We, yeah. We don't live in the past or in the future, but if our mind is focused on either the past or future, it's focusing on fear, fear of the past or fear of the future. Yet, if we look at the present moment right now, what's actually happening? nothing bad. Tamala and I are having a conversation. People are listening to us and learning from it and having a joyous experience and went all and making authentic connections. And that is how we heal. We don't heal in 
solidarity, you know, in loneliness. We don't heal alone. We didn't get harmed. We didn't have our trauma alone and we don't mm-hmm. heal by ourselves. We need others to help us. Now, finding those others can be a bit tricky because we don't trust people and our defense mechanisms are in place. But when we start finding those people, I call them our tribe. When we find our tribe, there's one or two people that help us initially. And Mm -hmm. I, in my book, I mention a couple of of the people in my tribe in, in my younger years and over the years, how that has grown and how at different times of our life, the people who help us are not meant to stay with us forever. Some of them are just coming in, helping us deal with something, and then we're to let them go because who we authentically are is growing. And no offense to our best friends from, from high school. I am not the same person as I was in high school. I'm not the same person I was in my twenties. I'm not the same person. My first husband married, you know, and over the past 25 years with my current husband, I'm not the same person I was when I married him. Absolutely. And that's part of what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to grow. And the tribe of people that we gather, the only reason they're in our lives is because they want to see us grow. They want to see us expand. And we want to help them grow and expand as well. So that is how the book, that's basically how the book is laid out. But the Raven comes from my mother's Native American background. She is um, a Native American Athabascan tribe. Um, which is in the Northwest. And then it's a Tinglet specific. And then Raven clan is the, is the family group is the Raven clan. And when I started researching the Raven, because of course, everybody immediately thinks of Edgar Allan Poe and thinks of death and all that darkness, that's not what the Raven is meant to be. The Raven is associated with death because it does show up at death, but it shows up there for a purpose. It's there to take the spirit to the next level. And over the course of um, literature and history, if you look at the significance in African-American tribes and Druidism and in the Bible, the Bible actually Noah sends the raven out first in the Bible and it doesn't come back. Do you know why it doesn't come back? Because it's resourceful. Mm. It found a home. And it was resourceful. So the, so the Raven is really about transcendence and transformation and how you can, how, wherever you are, transcend to the next, next plane, transcend to the next spiritual realm that you're supposed to move to. We were never meant to stay an infant. We're meant to grow. We're never meant to stay a toddler. We're meant to grow. So every year that we are growing, are we improving over the previous year? Am I a better version of myself today than I was yesterday? And ultimately that's where we're supposed to go. So if we're stuck in trauma, if we're stuck in codependent behavior, then we need to look at why are we still stuck? What are we believing? What lies is our ego telling us that we're believing that we can't transcend? Yes. What's next? What's next? What's next? I love that. So this is just yummy talk. (laughs) (laughs) So you are a coach. I am. What made you go into that journey? But first I'd like to ask, were you ever able to have a conversation with your mom about everything that happened? 
over the course of my years with, with my mother, there were several different things. I had an emotional breakdown when I was 13 because um, of a phone call I had with her. Um, I again had another emotional breakdown in my um, early 30s from another conversation with her. And at that conversation, I realized I had to cut her off. I had to end the, the communication. And so I did for the first time put in because, you know, at age 11, you don't, nobody teaches children about personal boundaries. We tell them all the things they cannot do, but nobody teaches teenagers need to learn personal boundaries mm-hmm. and nobody teaches young people personal boundaries. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, my, uh, I had a family member come stay with me and, you know, she's in her late twenties, didn't know what a personal boundary was. I'm like, good gracious. So we really need to understand that setting personal boundaries is about protecting us. That is a fabulous defense mechanism. And guess what? You can change it as needed because it's your boundary. You can be flexible with it. So the first personal boundary I ever put in place in my life was with my mother. And I told her that the only way she could communicate with me was if she was sober. If she called and she was drunk, I was going to hang up on her. Now, one of the things about personal boundaries is that we have to say whatever the consequences that we've placed, if they do this, we're going to do that. We have to do that. We have to do that. And my mother, you know, she didn't call me for a couple of weeks and then she called and she was drunk. And I said, mom, you're drunk. I told you I wasn't going to talk to you. And I hung up the phone. Then I sunk to the phone. Now, this is when in the days where phones were still plugged into the wall. Yes. And so I sunk to the floor, unplugged the phone from the wall, and the next day changed the phone number. And, you know, I, it was one of the hardest days in my life because every little girl wants to believe that mommy loves them. Absolutely. Every little girl wants to believe that their mother is going to protect them. And here I am in my thirties and I find it finally hits me. That is not possible for my mother. So later on, um, she, she does respect the boundary and we've had several different conversations over the years. Mm -hmm. And then she, and then she, she called drunk again and I hung up the phone and I didn't speak to her for years, years. And my sister calls me and says that my mother's in the hospital. Uh, she has tuberculosis and they think she's dying right now. She's in comatose. And for some unknown reason, this woman put me on as the person for, to deal with her medical issues. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. That, that, yeah. So do I, my sister's crying, please don't let mommy die. And, you know, I'm like, well, of course not. I'm the eldest sister. I'm going to make sure everything's okay. And I go in and fix everything. And I did all that. And she's in the hospital for about eight weeks total, about six weeks in, she wakes up. I know she's completely sober because guess what you can't do in, in the hospital. Well, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. She's perfectly sober. And they asked, so I'm talking to doctors and nurses. I'm not speaking to her. They let me know that she would like to speak to me. If was I, was that okay? So I said, yes. And I, cause I knew she was sober and I talked to her and in that conversation, she acknowledged that I was right. 
And, but she didn't acknowledge she was present. She didn't acknowledge why it happened, but she did acknowledge the rape. Didn't ask me for forgiveness for anything that she has done or didn't do. Um, but that was about the length of the conversation. The only time we've ever actually had that conversation. And when she passed years later, now she gets, she's sober. She leaves the hospital. I'm planning to visit her because she's now going to be in my sister's. And if she's sober, and I know she left the hospital sober two days prior to to me arriving, I find out that she's drinking again. So I don't see my mother. Um, And then my sister lost track of her. She went to Alaska and my sister lost track for her. And in 2012, she died in New Mexico alone. Um, It actually took the state of New Mexico three months before before they actually found my sister to inform because she had told the hospice people that she had no family. So on her deathbed, she abandoned my sister and I again. My goodness. So in the course of all that, when she died, you know, my sister was upset and she said, you don't seem upset. And I said, "Mm, you really have to understand. I didn't have a relationship with her. So she kind of, there was a part of me that knew that that relationship was dead. And about three weeks later, I realized I was sad, but interestingly enough, I was sad because I had held on to the hope that there would be reconciliation. Absolutely. And that is what I mourned in her passing was the, the, the Mm -hmm. understanding that reconciliation wouldn't occur. And then about a week and a half later, I realized, but of course it can't occur because now she's spirit. And we're all spiritual beings. Her energy is, is now in a better energetic place and therefore reconciliation can occur. And so in all of that, forgiveness is really, really important for all of us. And it has nothing to do with our perpetrators. It has nothing to do with how anybody harms us or feels about us. It's about us saying, I am worthy and I am more important than the perpetrator. And I'm no longer going to be attached unnaturally in a negative way to that person. That's what forgiveness breaks. It breaks that negativity, that, that anchor that pulls us down, that makes us sink into depression. It alleviates that so that we can fly. Yeah, you're free. It's no more bondage. Um, It's, it's big. Um, It's, it's big. Yeah. I've had to do a lot of work. And forgiving and understanding that. So that's fantastic. Wow, that is, that's amazing. I'm glad that you were able to have your own closure in your own way. Um, See, uh, closure, I, I have an issue with closure. Ready? Okay, my issue, with clo- my issue with closure is that people think that's the end. That oh. closure brings an ending. And the reality is there really is an ending to, to us and our lives because even that trauma occurred when I was 11 and now I'm in my early fifties, it still affects. Yeah, it is. And at this point, it doesn't affect negatively. It affects in a positive way because I'm turning around and giving back. I'm sharing my story. I'm sharing with, through my book and through my podcast, and then guesting on your podcast, Tamala, that my story is there to help others become free. Absolutely. And in doing that and realizing that, what happened to me 
is still happening to people across the country and across the world. And it's sad and it shouldn't be happening. And yet there's a way for us to overcome and there's a path to overcome. And I have built a bridge, which is what my coaching does is it bridges that gap, that pit of despair. It bridges that. So you don't have to go into that. I've been there. I know what it's like. You don't need to go there and I can help bridge you over to um, not just surviving, but into a life that is thriving. Absolutely. So do you have, do you do one-on-one coaching, group coachings? What all do you offer? I offer a one-on-one and mainly because the initial getting to know one another thing, mm-hmm. you, you know, I have to share my story so that you feel mm-hmm. comfortable enough to share your story. Mm-hmm. And what I have found out is my story seems to be one of the more horrific ones, even though for me, I look at other people who had to sustain long-term sexual mm-hmm. abuse as a child. I only had to deal with one episode. Right. Um, so for me, I think that has more issues, mm-hmm. but because my mother was involved, because drugs were involved, people start associating different things. So I don't ever think that mine is is more traumatic than somebody else's because we all respond differently. And, and we all come from different backgrounds and we all have different personalities. So we process things differently. And, you know, my sister processed the abandonment very differently than I did because Mm -hmm. she's a completely different person. So when people look and say, well, how did you do this? And she did that. And it's because she's herself and I'm myself. And, um, And we need to understand that everybody goes through their, has to process things their own way. And all I'm here to do is to help people really question their thinking. Why do you think that way? Where did that thought come from? Are you looking at life from a place of fear or a place of love? Mm -hmm. If you think life is going to be hard, it will be hard. But if you think life is going to be joyful. It will be joyful because now you're paying attention to the joy in your life. Absolutely. I love how you talked about the past and of course the future and really just staying right here in the present, Mm -hmm. which can really affect both, you know, correct. Depending on how you do it right now. I love Mm -hmm. that. And where can people find out more about your programs or contact you and all of that good stuff? All my services you can find at terrykozlowski.com. My book is raventranscendingfear.com. And my podcast is the soul solutions podcast.com. So you can find everything at my website and I'm across all social media. Fantastic. So I asked all of my guests, if you could give the audience one thing that they can take into their future, what would it be? You are more than enough. Just the way you are. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter how you currently feel about yourself because you are worthy just as you are, just like that newborn baby, you are still worthy and good enough, just the way you are. You may have obstacles you want to overcome, but that doesn't change your worthiness. That is wonderful. Uh, Thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been such a blessing. I, I pray that it left everyone just tons to think about 
you know, so much, I just feel the healing coming through, like through you, through the, <laughs> through the thank Zoom, you. I feel it. It's just so <laughs> wonderful. It's, it's great energy. So I thank you so much. I want to let the audience know that you matter and your story matters. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Codependent Me podcast. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye-bye. I understand that nothing is more valuable than your time. So thank you for listening. Be sure to join our Facebook group, Codependent Me. And check out my website at codependentme.org. Thanks so much. Have a great day.